You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Greg. Hey, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Greg Lukianoff, mm-hmm. if I've got that right. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you are, among other things, uh, the author of a well-known, co-author of a well-known best, best-selling book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to talk about that at some point, uh, but I also want to talk about uh, other things, including the, the moment we're in politically, because I think it's relevant to that book. Sure. Um, and somewhat relevant to, uh, I guess, what you call your day job as mm-hmm. a free speech crusader. Is that uh, a fair way to put it or yeah, not? Sure, sure. It's what I would, it, It's my life's mission. <laughs> okay. So you're president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which I guess takes uh, free speech cases on campuses especially and mm-hmm. uh, defends the speakers? Uh, we defend professors and students uh, who get in trouble. Even since 2001, it was surprisingly easy to get in trouble on college campus for what you said. Even relatively innocent things um, we, we, we see pretty often. And I, I, you know, I went to law school specifically to do First Amendment, and I, I'm one of those people who believes that even Nazis deserve free speech rights. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I have a kind of interesting job in that I get to defend routinely you know, pretty nice kids. Good. Uh, I'm glad to hear they're 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 out there. Um, <laughs> they do exist. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, and the and the co-author of that book is uh, John Height, mm-hmm. uh, who I think has also been on this platform at one time or another. Um, He's the best. Yeah, um, and uh, so I want to. Uh, what I would like to start out talking about, because in ways that will become apparent, I think it is relevant to uh, the other work you do. Uh, I want to start talking about the current political moment. Yeah. Uh, We're taping this two days after the network's called The Election, Mm -hmm. which means that one of the two candidates is convinced that the election is over. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And the resistance of the other one to this idea... um, it seems likely in my mind to um, guarantee what was already to some extent guaranteed, which is a, the sustaining of political polarization, tribal, yeah. tri- tribalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, to some extent. Um, do you, for, for starters, do you have any thoughts about this or where we are now or... It, it, it's always a little uh, difficult because, you know, I, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a Democrat, um, but I also run a nonpartisan shop uh, where I'm an atheist defending, you know, uh, evangelical Christians. Um, I'm a political liberal defending conservatives. So I try not to get too political on, on, on stuff. So I, I hold back a little bit. But this, does, you know, this is a moment that scares me. You know, like the, um, uh, the idea that there would be, you know, the president would actually be sowing doubt in the integrity of the entire um, electoral process is is scary, and I'm not I'm not familiar with any parallel. Certainly not the 20th century, and I'm not even sure in the 19th. Um, and so far, uh, I, I was I was worried that things were going to be actually a lot worse. I live in uh, downtown DC. I live not too far from the Capitol, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't. I made a point of not being in town for the election because who knows what was going to happen. Uh, and so far, so so good in, in in the sense that kind of some of the scariest um, sort of civil unrest that can happen because you know we've got a 
so many different things going on. The, their civil, civil unrest is oftentimes associated with pandemics, too. You know, like, so there's so many, particularly, you know, I've got a, a two and a four year old, and um, there's so many, there's so much uncertainty. And now it seems like the only uncertainty is what's going to happen. Uh, is Trump eventually going uh, to eventually concede? And I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so maybe we should say a little more about uh, your book and work just to, uh, before we talk more about the, the current scene, just to make sure everybody understands some connection. So uh, The Coddling of the American Mind came out... Um, at a time when there had just started to be, in the last few years, a lot of concern expressed about the state of speech on campuses and the acuteness of political sensibilities mm-hmm. on campus. Um, I, uh, I I doubt you use, I don't know, do you use derogatory terminology like snowflakes? But in any event, some people might might describe the book as being about how snowflakes became snowflakes, right? Mm-hmm. The, the how how some students um, came to be seemingly more reactive mm-hmm. uh, in the face of speech they found uh, unpalatable than maybe previous generations had been, or something. I mean, you know, we're talking about. I guess to some extent, so, so-called social justice warriors, yeah. and and so on. Is well, it, it's one of those things. You know, I've been doing this for nearly twenty years. I started uh, defending free speech on campus in two thousand one, and you know, as I always say, even back then, it was surprisingly hard to get in trouble for what you said. Sorry, sorry, surprisingly easy to get in trouble for what you said on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the terms like snowflake, I mean, Height and I even have a, a, a video where we explicitly say, I didn't even want to name the book coddling. I didn't want to name the article coddling. Like, I, that's not the point. It, it, I mean, we don't think these, partially because people think we mean spoiled. And uh, the, the publisher insisted on it, essentially, essentially um, because the title had worked so well before when I previously objected to it. Um, as, we, as an Atlantic cover story, that's how that, you've... That, that in 2015. I, I mean, right. I, I, in defense of, of my uh, editor at the time, though, my proposed title was Arguing Towards Misery, um, which is mm. boring as all get out, um, but closer to the, what, what the point that I was making. Um, but yeah, we don't like the term snowflake. We're not huge fans of, 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 of the term coddling. But there was something different about the students who started hitting campus around 2013. And, and if you were on the front lines of, of, of these battles, these culture war battles, and that, to be clear, they're not all culture war battles. A lot of times this is just, you know, an administrator who uh, is drunk on power, essentially, like a university president who doesn't like being insulted. That Those cases are extremely common and they get almost no attention. But prior to 2013, students had always been really good on free speech. They'd, always, they'd gotten, you know, comedy being offensive. They'd come to defense of their, their professors when they would get in trouble for what they said. And then suddenly, and it was very fast. It was 2013, 2014. You started seeing the demands for new speech codes coming from students, which for my entire previous career had gone the other way. You start seeing um, demands for trigger warnings, things I actually hadn't heard of previously. Um, you, you start seeing the uh, microaggressions get re- popularized as an idea, and what was particular one of the reasons why I reached out to John Height was because they were also increasingly medicalizing it. Not saying that uh, I don't want Newt Gingrich here because I find him offensive, but saying that I don't want this you know right winger here, or actually increasingly uh, as happened in 2014, you know moderate here, who. Um, 
because it would be medically harmful to me in, in, in like a post-traumatic uh, sense. And I thought this was getting the psychology so wrong. I reached out to John Haidt, who I was new friends with, and that's how Coddling the American Mind, uh, the article started. Mm-hmm. So I guess one connection, not the only one, between that and the current political moment is that I think no few Trump supporters are reacting against what that broadly represents, right? Mm -hmm. Like speech codes and the very careful way you're supposed to talk about um, people of uh, particular ethnic groups or, and this is, I mean, I'm trying to characterize their view. I'm not taking a position, but, uh, or, uh, well, I was about to say sexual orientation, but then I, 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 I forgot whether that phrase is itself even can, even frowned on, it, right? It, it I can mean, be hard to keep up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but you know what I mean. And, uh, and, and I do think that, uh, you know, what, what kind of shocked liberals, which was that um, uh, someone who spoke as crudely as Trump sometimes spoke mm-hmm. could find a large and receptive audience. Yeah was i mean that was the reason for his large and receptive audience to some extent i think was that he was saying i'm not playing by these rules right yeah yeah no and i I do think that the sort of writ large opposition to um political correctness is one of those things that really did help him And, and occasionally you'd have people saying you know like how dare we draw attention to these problems on campus when people like trump use them and you know my argument back is is like well, then stop doing things like this <laughs> like stop, you know stop getting good professors you know fired um, for uh, um, for literally quoting a Supreme Court case for example like the the, the uh, and we and it's been interesting because the administration I'll, I'll say like the the DeVos de, de, um, Department of Education has done some things we liked. You know, um, there was uh, a really bad definition of harassment that was being used routinely and had been for years to uh, get very clearly protected speech on campus that was propagated during the Obama administration, which was a huge disappointment to me. Um, and they got rid of that during the Trump administration. Can you, can you spell that out a little? What was it that the Obama administration did? Um, it was an, an overall process at the Department of Education um, where uh, at, around 2009, they appointed a new head of it, Ruslan Ali. And the first thing that, that got people's attention, particularly ours, um, was uh, declaring that the standard of uh, proof that you'd need in, in a situation when someone was accused of harassment, and, and uh, harassment also includes rape and assault, mm. um, that it would just be preponderance of evidence, um, which is the lowest evidentiary standard you, you, you actually can get, low, the lowest um, level of confidence. And the highest being beyond a reasonable doubt? Beyond or a reasonable doubt, yeah. Mm-hmm. And clear and convincing was where a lot of the top schools had been prior to that, which is considered just kind of somewhere in between, not quite, you know, because preponderance of evidence is considered flip of a coin, you know, 50% plus a feather is the way it's been described. And since we think that that's really the only meaningful protection uh, people get when they're accused of harassment on campus, that at least that has to be somewhat stronger than that. Mm-hmm. So that led to a, a, you know, a kind of a big fight with the Department of Education. Um, and, the, and schools over the country, all over the country have consistently been sued for kicking out generally men um, accused of everything from her- verbal harassment, but in a lot of cases, um, a- assault. Uh, and for the first, you know, uh, uh, many cases, the, the 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 men were losing, 
Um, we're now up to, I don't know, like 140 cases where universities are, are, are doing what the Department of Education had told them to do and losing in court because it's considered not to be enough due process for someone accused of something that serious. But from a free, and so we do due process as part of what we do. So this isn't like a coincidental part of, 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 um, of, of FIRE's work. But um, the, uh, the thing that really hit f- the, the free speech part of my work was uh, over the years, the, the Supreme Court has sort of craft, uh, carefully crafted this um, uh, definition of harassment as applied to educational context to make sure it doesn't interfere with pedagogy, that doesn't take, you know, relatively small, you know, hair pulling between kids in second grade, you know, like they, they wanted to avoid that. So they came up with a pretty stringent definition of what harassment should be expressly to protect free speech. Mm-hmm. And in 2013, the Department of Education just threw all of those protections out and just said that free, that any um, uh, unwelcome uh, speech uh, of, a, uh, of a sexual nature would count as harassment. None of the qualifications whatsoever. Now, and to be clear, that's not just sexual speech. Um, that ends up getting applied to, in some jurisdictions, as many as 18 different categories, including things like, oddly, like political belief. And what your listeners probably need to know is that this isn't just some theoretical concern. Since the 1980s, when universities have been trying to defend speech codes, um, that's, they, they call them harassment codes. This, this was a shock to me. I, I, didn't realize that when, I didn't realize when I was at Stanford Law School that it was only two years before that Stanford's own speech code, uh, harassment-based speech code, had been shot down. And I didn't know it was actually authored by one of my professors uh, because nobody wanted to talk about that because it was considered kind of like you know, sort of embarrassing, even though it was just two years ago. So these harassment definitions have been used again students and professors routinely, and they have been for decades. So um, taking the definition to something that would be so manifestly overbroad, like too, too vague and overbroad to pass constitutional muster, but it coming from the Department of Education makes it a lot harder to get standing to fight it. So yeah, that's then, the thing. Oh, sorry. I assume the Trump administration rolled that back. They did. Um, they did. And, I, and I'll give them credit for it. That was actually a very good move. And I'm a little bit worried that all of this stuff is going to come back under the guy I voted for. Hmm. So let's let's um, let's talk a little about a little uh, about the thesis of the coddling of the uh, American mind. I, I gather there are a couple of explanations. So, again, your view is that college students who showed up on campus about, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago or something, mm-hmm. were different from college students earlier in yes. the degree of their their sensitivity to speech mm-hmm. they found offensive, their, their, their tendency to get triggered and see microaggressions and so on. I gather that y- you have at least two factors you emphasize in explaining this. Mm-hmm. One relates to the coddling part of the book, title Mm -hmm. and the idea there is that for whatever reason uh their parents more than previous generations of parents were very protective of them growing up i mean i remember as i'm sure a lot of people of my generation remember at a fairly young age i don't know seven eight nine you would just leave the house yeah and come back hours later you would just leave the house with friends go play baseball, go to the convenience store uh, and come back hours later and it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had almost no scheduled playtime and 
and then that of course uh has changed yeah uh and 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 this is one of the two things you emphasize right mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, um, we talk about six different things that we think cause the problems that we currently see. And, and the problems are twofold. Um, a, a student population with a lower, thresh, you know, a lower th- uh, threshold for acceptable speech, um, but also higher rates of anxiety and depression. And, and we predicted that uh, basically the, 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 the way cognitive behavioral therapy gets into this theory is essentially what, what I observed on campus was it was as if... And, and can, uh, I, can I interrupt oh, sure. and say, because this is something I want to get to oh, sorry. later, yeah. is that cognitive behavioral therapy um, is something that, first of all, you swear by mm-hmm. uh, because it helped you a lot personally yep. during a difficult time of your life. Still does. And, and you believe as I do, that it, it can help uh, people navigate some of the challenges of, like, social media, uh, both without becoming psychological victims of social media themselves and without contributing unnecessarily to things like polarization mm-hmm. by overreacting to things and so on. I want to get into all that because, you know, I have myself been something of an evangelizer for mindfulness and 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 uh, the two have a lot in common in terms of yeah, the way they work. It, it, it involves becoming more aware of the feelings that are guiding your thoughts and exerting more in the way of conscious control over how you react to things and and so on. So with that as a uh, a little uh, asterisk, yeah. go ahead. So ju- just very simply, the thing that we observed on campus, or I observed uh, prior to talking to John, was um, it was as if uh, administrators were telling students. Um, uh, do engage in cognitive distortions. And cognitive distortions are basically rules for arguing fairly with yourself, um, things you shouldn't do if you want to uh, argue fairly with yourself. And those include things like um, binary thinking, everything's either either or, um, uh, a magnification, something very small, you know, is, is huge. A, ver- a version of mag- magnification is called catastrophizing, mm-hmm. um, which all of us do to, to some degree. Overgeneralization, labeling, these are all things that when you're depressed and anxious, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy r- revealed that if you get very good at being able to call out these kind of distortions in your head and not respond with the power of positive thinking, but rather just go like, is that actually rational? Mm-hmm. You can you can bring it back. You can actually calm yourself down. And what I was seeing on campus was, was as if administrators were saying, do engage in binary thinking, do catastrophize, do magnify, do personalize, all this kind of stuff. And that was when we wrote the original article in 2015, we were saying that the students are only learning what they're being taught. Like they're only showing showing what they're being taught here. And it is, and these are habits of mind that will make you anxious and depressed. um, And it will make you less tolerant towards people you disagree with at the same time. If you have all of these beliefs, you know, in in effect. So that's how these things connect. But at the time we were hearing horror stories about how bad the mental health situation was, had gotten on campus, but we didn't have good data in front of us yet, um, at least not enough of it. And after we wrote the original article, when the data started coming in, it was horrifying. So we have this weird combination of like, what, what's going on? Why, why is, why and, and is again, this? And again, the data relates to anxiety and depression among, at that point, college-age yes. kids and, and perhaps younger and 
and involving even things like suicide rate, self-harm, not, not yeah. just self-reported depression and anxiety. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and this is all very clear for people born after 1995-96. Much higher rates of depression, much higher rates of suicide, much higher rates of hospitalization for self-harm. I mean, like the saddest stat that um, you know I've had to update was uh, the increase in suicide among 10 to 14-year-olds, which is uh, generally thankfully younger than most people even attempt to kill themselves. So we were trying to figure out what happened. Um, and, uh, our initial theory definitely was clearly incomplete. So we started writing the book and researching and we came up with, uh, six causal threads about what was so different about this generation, um, on campus. And one of them was paranoid parenting. And to be clear, we were very clear about this, and I insist on saying this every time. The problems faced by kids who aren't, who are in, in the, problem really to a degree, in the bottom three quartiles, but at least in the, in, in the bottom half of, of the social economic uh, uh, um, uh, order, uh, oftentimes face very different situations than the kind of, the kind of kids who end up populating these elite colleges. And we're always very clear. And uh, Robert Putnam has wrote a great book called Our Kids about specifically that divide, which I care a great deal about. But when you're looking on campuses, unfortunately, in a lot of particularly the elite campuses, you're not just looking at kids who are from like the top quartile. You're looking at people from the top percent. Mm-hmm. And so focusing on some of the things that were going wrong in the parenting strategies of the sort of upper class um, SES was something that we really looked into. And everything was converging on this kind of toxic way of raising kids so they get into the fancy schools um, and paranoid parenting that, that schedules everything until um, from morning till night. So and is, the, t- is the idea in terms of how this plays out, is the idea yeah. that if you would let your kids out of the house more... They would have, uh, you know, kids would have picked on them. They would have, I mean, in what way would they have become tougher, I guess, is my question. Because, you know, they're not exactly analogous situations. Like, I don't remember when I was 8, 9, 10 and being mm-hmm. given a free reign, engaging in a lot of vigorous debate and going, oh, you disagree. Well, I guess I have to live with that. No, I was just out, like, playing yeah. baseball and stuff. So it's kind of, it's not, com- I, now I do remember, you know, getting picked on by big kids and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess, is that part of the dynamic you're taught what would have toughened these kids up in your view if they hadn't been uh raised in the way they were raised i guess i don't really think it as much in terms of toughing not i think about uh, having a sense of internal locus of control and having a sense of self-efficacy you know because that's one of, so the six factors that we talked about in the book one was um rise of social media um, the second one was political polarization. Both of these factors are all made hotter by, by, by social media. But then we get to two things on parenting. One is the paranoid parenting. And the second one is lack, lack of free time. Now, the lack of free time, is it, is it helpful to, to get a better physical sense of your own resilience? Sure, that's, that's fine. But much more importantly is having the sense of uh, being able to figure out things on your own, um, of, having, of being able to function as, uh, as an adult uh, in the real world. Because if you don't have that, and, and, and that's one of the things that, that, that people sometimes really miss about this, you're dooming kids to actually just feel scared um, an awful lot. That basically they, and, and uh, Julie Lithgott Haynes, she, she was one of the people we interviewed in it. She wrote a great book called um, How, uh, How to uh, Raise, an, Raise an Adult. She's actually writing a book right now called How to Be an Adult that's coming, coming out soon. And she started seeing this at the incoming class at Stanford. Suddenly you get these genius kids, you know, showing up, but they're on their phones constantly to their parents because they, they don't feel qualified 
to answer questions that go outside of the very narrow things they were trained in. And that is a formula for anxiety. That is a formula for depression. That is a formula for appealing to authority in situations that would normally just be handled on an interpersonal level. Um, and that's, I, I think, not good for the individual student's mental health. I do think it leads to an exaggerated sense of threat. Um, all of these things end up being related. And, it's not, and like I said, it's not really a question of toughening up. It's more, I, I wanted to call the book Disempowered because I, I think what we're doing to these incredible kids is giving them a sense that they're only competent in this tiny little sliver of academic life. Whereas, you know, people who have actually been able to run their own lives for some amount of time come in, you know, not as scared by the world and not, not as anxious about it. Okay. So, uh, you mentioned the social media. Another uh, another factor is this, and this is the one I had in mind when I said it. It seems mm-hmm. that there are two big factors because it's just the one I've heard you talk about the most, aside from the parenting. Yeah, is the fact that this generation of kids encountered social media kind of all of a sudden, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, uh, social media is really weird. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the whole idea of uh, of online feedback and being criticized by people online, sometimes people you don't know. Mm-hmm. All of this, it's easy to forget now how strange all of this is, how, how recently it became part of human experience. But um, talk a little about how exactly you see uh, kind of this generation's encounter with, I guess, initially Facebook and then maybe other social media mm-hmm. playing out. Yeah, we think social media plays a really important role in the first kind of two phenomena that we saw. One is mental health, uh, anxiety, and depression. And the second one is polarization. And we think these are kind of tightly interrelated. And when I talk about like how this could uh, play havoc with your mental health, I I can't. the, The sheer horror of thinking about everything that I did when I was between the ages of like 12 and 18 being online there forever, you know, it it is horrifying. But it also helps explain one of the reasons why we think that it seems to have hit young women harder um, than men is partially because, and there's there's interesting research on this, and that definitely there are people who who think we're dead wrong on this stuff, but at the same time, you know, we're we're fairly persuaded that a lot of the sort of interpersonal um, aggression you know, for, for boys is generally physical. For girls, it tends to be relational. And suddenly you end up having this device in your pocket that, um, you know, when I try to scare people to, to, to understand, like, what this must feel like, I say, imagine the worst of eighth grade mean girls all the time, 24 hours a day for the rest of your life. And I do think that that, that is one of the things that definitely could lead to a greater sense of... Mm-hmm. And well, when you say re- relation, well, go ahead and finish the sentence. A greater sense of what? A greater sense of well, just uh, of, of sort of hyper arousal that essentially at any minute you could be ruined. Um, uh-huh. and it is a pretty intense way to grow up. And so, when you say relational as opposed to physical, you mean that the threats traditionally to uh, to adolescent girls have been more verbal yeah. than 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 for boys. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. Um, that, that essentially, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of fighting among middle school girls is more about, like, who gets iced out, who gets insulted, uh, uh, that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, social media kind of pats you on the back for that kind of stuff. Like, essentially, like, having the tight little echo chamber is something that that it encourages, which is also why I think it makes polarization uh, more dramatic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's strange. Um, social media. Do you see any signs that that kids are getting better at navigating it? Uh, don't. Too early to tell. Um, uh, unfortunately, when I most recently updated the data, I'm doing a series called Catching Up with Coddling on my, on my blog, um, and uh, the numbers are still going up for anxiety and depression, um, so clearly something's wrong. Um, the, hosp- uh, the, the thing we weren't expecting at all was after we published the book, there was a big spike in suicides for young men which we didn't really see coming. Apparently some of those uh, might, might have something to do with the um, uh, opioid uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, crisis as well. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. So you, uh, do, do I understand you say, so social media had the, the one impact we've just described, but also a kind of the second order effect of heightening polarization, or are you I, just seeing polarization as kind of an exogenous... I, I think of polar. I think that um, uh, social media has absolutely accelerated polarization. My overall theory. Um, I wrote a short book in 2014 called "Freedom from Speech," which was basically making the argument that as other things get better, um, sort of square in the circle with people like Steve Pinker, um, uh, that there are a category of things that will get worse. That essentially, as you get more comfortable, as you are able to move to communities that reflect your values, the whole post-materialist society, Ronald Englehart idea, mm-hmm. um, that, that, and that sounds lovely. I mean, oh, wow, I get to be in communities that reflect my values, um, which we, we, we've seen, you know, starting with people who, who like, um, uh, like Bill Bishop, who wrote The Big Sort, we see that we're physically doing that to a large degree. If you add to that, that you can not only live in a, in a neighborhood that is much more politically hom- homogeneous, and, and we do, as best we can tell, live in much more both economically uh, um, uh, separated and, and uh, politically separated uh, communities increasingly. But when you add to that, that you're, you're, um, uh, you have this whole other realm where, uh, you know, getting, getting likes feels really good and being able to curate your, your, Facebook, uh, your Facebook group so it feels like everybody agrees with you. The social science there is very compelling they ended up with a with group polarization spirals that essentially, um, uh, Cass Sunstein, you know, is is probably the other lawyer who gets into into this the most um, about how uh, you know the more you're surrounded by people who agree with you, um, one, you, you end up getting more arguments on your side, and that was a very lawyerly way to look at it, which I, which I liked. Um, that essentially, when when you actually just took down how many arguments people would have on their side of the, uh, their side of a political issue, they, they, it might be ten to one essentially the number of arguments that they have for their position and, and how few they have against. Um, but there's also just the tribalism part, you know, like th- that once you actually start feeling it in your heart, you start having that identity that these are my people and these people are threatening them. That turns on something very nasty about human nature, which is oftentimes intermediated by face-to-face conduct. Uh, when you can actually like see someone and be like, wait, they probably have kids. They, they, they like coffee just like me. You know, like we, we listen to the same music. All that stuff goes out the window and people are this um, sort of simplified, perfect tribalistic uh, avatar. <laughs> and, 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 and as we've kind of suggested, social media can play a role in that. But as you, you also cited uh, the Bishop book, The Big Sort, um, you know, we live physically more and more kind of in enclaves. I mean, I had yeah. a funny experience. Uh, uh, I guess it was uh, Thursday or Friday or something. Uh, I was just riding my bike uh, since the pandemic. That's been my mode of exercise because uh, swimming has become problematic. So I was starting out on my daily bike ride and a car pulls up to me and the guy rolls down the window and says, they called Wisconsin for Biden. And I thought, 
That's interesting that he just assumes that any bike rider in his neighborhood <laughs> voted yep. for Biden. And, you know, actually, I've it's seen... It's a pretty I saw safe the, guess. Well, actually, it's funny. I, I saw the numbers in 2016 for this town, and they're not as overwhelming as you'd think. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was like uh, 70-30 or something, but it, uh-huh. but he probably figured, you know, he sized me up demographically. The guy's riding a bike. Who knows? But yeah. but it's just a it's just a testament to how much we all assume that anybody we see, and maybe it's more of an assumption like anyone I see who doesn't look like a monster must agree with me because <laughs> because I assume right. that all these people I never talked to who voted for Trump are monsters, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know, but but that's that's kind of where we are. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, well, why don't you quickly, I mean, we don't have time to get into all of them, but since you started your list of six, ju- just for the record, why don't you yeah. list any that you think you haven't mentioned? Yeah, so uh, it's um, for societally, like the two big ones are uh, social media um, polarization, which are clearly, those are the first two. Um, The next two are related to parenting, which is uh, paranoid parenting and lack of free play. And we actually devoted an entire chapter to that. We weren't actually expecting that to be such an important factor, but we really think it is. And then five and six are more about why universities themselves are so dysfunctional. and five is about the part that I'm really passionate about. It's the longest chapter in the whole book, but it's not as sexy, which is hyper-bureaucratization of universities. Um, I've seen this in action for 20 years, that essentially you have these you know, mid-level administrators, sometimes they think they're doing the right thing, you know, who um, over-police speech. Um, you also have people who are trying to get away with something, who are just you know, uh, trying to punish a student or, or professor they don't like. And as these things get bigger and bigger and more expensive and more Byzantine, um, a lot of these weird uh, uh, um, things like bias-related incident programs that really go deeper into students' lives than previous generations ever would have uh, expected uh, come out of it. So the, the, the mass bureaucratization, the hyper-mega-corporatization of universities plays a role. And the last one, which is the one that conservatives like to harp on the most for understandable reasons, are new ideas of uh, social justice. Um, and, and that's definitely one of the ones that we've seen really take off in the past couple of years. Um, the, the, uh, and part of that, you know, is we talk about intersectionality, for example, in the book. And we're very clear. It's kind of like on, on its face, intersectionality is true. Your, your identities intersect. Um, they have, you're not just one, uh, you know, one category of person. Everything, uh, all of these things have, have, have societal intersections. But we do think that sometimes, particularly when it's used for as, as a rhetorical tactic rather than as an intellectual idea, it ends up creating what we, what we call in the book a, um, a common enemy identity politics as opposed to a common humanity identity politics. And I think this is the reason why when people talk about cancel culture, they refer a lot back to call-out culture on high schools and, and, and campuses to, to talk about this way of arguing um, that is uh, kind of impossible to win. Either you're good or you're evil, and most people are evil. I have a question that just popped into my mind. Sure. The, the um, <clears throat> Excuse me. The... Um some 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 terms have clearly kind of changed in meaning uh, mm-hmm. since I was young. White supremacy. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, white white supremacy used to be someone who was explicitly asserting the superiority of white people and yeah. and and favoring various uh, political implications of that that view as that person saw them. Um, racism, I think, more than now was taken to be an overt 
attitude manifest mm-hmm. in certain kinds of, of views. Um, certainly, and it seems like both of those are increasingly seen by younger people mm-hmm. as things that are just kind can just be kind of subtly embedded in the fabric of institutions and and so on. So what what that leads to, I, I would think that leads to some flat out miscommunication. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh yeah, uh, and. Um, do you think there's a is there awareness among college kids that they're that if they talk to somebody who's fifty about racism yeah. or white supremacism, they may be talking about two different things? Um, I'm I'm sure there are there are students who are very aware of that, and I'm sure there are ones who aren't so aware of it. I mean, definitely, as far as a, a redefinition that I think is actually um, you know frankly pernicious is the redefinition of racism as being. Um, it's not racist. If it would otherwise be considered racist, but you're not considered to be someone in society who has power, then it's not racism. Mm-hmm. Is an argument that that um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I ran into when I was in law school uh, in the late '90s, and was just kind of like, "That's that's a terrible idea." Like that um, because you know, I'm I, my dad grew up in Yugoslavia. Uh, <laughs> the um, not powerful people hating each other is still people hating each other, um, and 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 it could lead to really. Uh, dramatic things and you know what we well, at least i was raised with i suspect you as well was uh individualism um in a very positive way was about like well get to know the person don't bring stereotypes to it just don't assume you know all these mm-hmm. things about them try to get them to know them as an individual um and it's not perfect it's got shortcomings certainly like not considering race at all and differences in in, in, in racial mistreatment is is you know, is wrong and foolish. But at the same time, um, just redefining a term, a commonly understood term, to mean one side of the argument can make as many overgeneralizations as it likes, um, but because it's not deemed to have power, it's okay when it's actually encouraging a habit of mind that gets you to de- depersonalize and, and dehumanize people to a degree. It, it's, it's not the right path, in my opinion. Okay, did... Um by the way, remind me, did you sign the Harper's letter? I didn't. You didn't? Um, it, I, I, you know, I run a nonpartisan shop, and uh, so I, it, there was a, well, I didn't, I, did, I, I was a supporter of it. Okay, so this was a famous, pretty famous letter signed by people who uh, yeah. uh, were arguing against cancel culture and so on. It, it came to mind because one response to that was that these are powerful people who can afford to, um, well, I, I forget how the rest of the argument went. But anyway, it was a complaint that these are relatively privileged people who are essentially yeah. trying to defend uh, their, their positions of power, their privilege. Yeah, and that's the, that's the way I feel like we're learning to argue on college campuses these days. I, I call it the perfect rhetorical fortress because it's, you know, you got a lot of cognitive energy figuring out how to win arguments in dorm rooms for, for decades. And great, because if it had been nobody's, you know, first of all, how are, how are people nobody who nobody knew going to get an open letter in Harper's? Mm-hmm. How are people who are afraid of getting canceled going to come forward in numbers and then also get an open letter in, Har- in Harper's? It's what, and if they had, there would have been some kind of, there would have been a way to dismiss them for being nobodies. Like, and, and so, obviously the only people who can come come forward and get an open letter in Harper's are people who, who have some influence. Um, 
And yeah, it, it's it's interesting watching this uh, this way we've learned to argue on, on campus. And and uh, I, that's why I call it the perfect rhetorical fortress. There's no way to lose. You don't have to ever 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 get to the su- the substance of someone's argument. You because you can you can do different variations on identity from an academic standpoint. You know, like maybe you're from this group or that group, and also you, you know, or have you sinned sometime in the past? So between those two, you can cancel. You can, and I don't, cancel has been a little bit overused. You can delegitimate uh, basically anybody or any argument that you want. Now, that's interesting that campuses have effed off this rhetorical style. Um, it's, uh, but I think it's downright toxic for a democracy, particularly a pluralistic one. And what's ironic about it is it's all about power. And it, and it has this idea that kind of like, well, I can say, make as many offensive overgeneralizations as I want because I don't have power. But when you look at the way universities, how powerful and influential elite universities are, it's as if they're not owning their own power. These are multi-billion dollar corporations that actually have a wildly disproportionate influence on the, on the future of the world at this point. Um, the, the ones who can practically guarantee your kid would get into a, you know, a, a very lucrative career, for example. Um, and they don't, somehow them not owning how powerful they are as institutions, I think has led to a lot of distortions in the way people think about power. Okay. But what about a kind of related argument that, um, I mean, leaving aside power differentials per se, maybe, but that the people best known these days as anti-cancel culture and uh, pro-free speech do tend to emphasize Mm -hmm. some free speech issues over others. So th- this is a criticism made of, of the so-called intellectual dark web. I yeah. don't know, do you feel an affinity with the with the IDW? Uh, I, I like some of them. You know, like, I, yeah. I've been on, I, I don't know some of them, some others of them, but the, the um, uh, I've been on, uh, you know, Brett Weinstein's podcast, for example. I think he's a smart, thoughtful person. Yeah, he's he's been on this podcast, too. Um, he, he was a, a victim of, uh, I, I guess, one of the more egregious... Really uh, awful. <laughs> one, of, one of the scarier uh, campus situations I guess yeah. I've heard about. Uh, so, but... but um, so the... I, and, I, and I've kind of made this case myself that the... The, uh, the, the idea that people are free speech hypocrites? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, this is kind of funny. Like, I, I feel like this is also partially a personality difference between me and my good friend, uh, Ken White, who's also known as Popat on, on Twitter. He, oh. He's a um, uh, First Amendment lawyer, brilliant guy, very, very, very funny. Um, but he's very cynical and very critical of, of uh, people who complain about cancel culture because they're not consistent on, on freedom of speech. Now, this is frustrating for me because... I've spent my whole career being consistent on free speech. I worked on the ACLU of Northern California, you know, like, um, and everybody who actually works in First Amendment law, who voted the left of it, we are very consistent on free speech. You're not always going to agree on what cases we take because sometimes um, what even the legal definitions are, not everyone disagree uh, uh, agrees on. But I do think that. I'm a little bit kind of like, yeah, people have their areas of focus. And yes, sometimes people are hypocrites. They, they see one thing as outrageous and they don't see the other thing as outrageous. Um, 
And we fo focus so much energy on calling people out for the, for, why don't you focus on this thing over here? Sometimes it's perfectly warranted. It, when it's an identical situation and it's right in front of them, then yeah, sure. Um, but time and time again, I feel like the way we've learned, and this is this is different from the perfect, the perfect rhetorical fortress idea. This, this is the way we argue on Twitter. The primary thing is to not do anything and point out someone else's hypocrisy. Um, and, I, and I get really angry about this because I'll, I'll, I have left-wing professors getting in trouble all the time on college campuses. And I bring these cases out on Twitter and you get people going, see, I bet those free speech guys would never uh, you know, defend this person or the, or the IDW would never defend these people. And in a lot of those cases, the IDW are retweeting it. They are saying this is outrageous, um, to, to at least the people that I know on that. We are free speech people, though, like for a living, and we're the ones who bring this to your attention. And the only value people can see in it is saying, let's poke that in the, in the right winger's faces. And I'm like, hey, hey, how about you try to help the professor who's currently in trouble? Um, we, we have this case of Babson College. It's completely ridiculous. It was one of the most, uh, one of the big, the biggest cases we had prior to um, the, the whole COVID thing. Uh, and this was back in, I think, February, maybe? Um, so a professor, uh, when, when Trump was saying that he was going to attack religious sites in Iran and, and, and historical sites in Iran, this guy was like, okay. Um, so he, he tweeted out, uh, uh, you know, to his friends that, that uh, well, you know, I, I'm going to tell Ayatollah Khomeini, this guy's like an expert on the Middle East, so like he, it's obviously a joke right there because Khomeini's been dead forever. Um, <laughs> you should you should attack the following cultural sites uh, in, in the U.S. But what are they? Um, the Mall of America, the Kardashian residence. I mean, so obviously a joke. He was fired. He was he, he was fired. He he, re, he remains, to my knowledge, unemployed. And this one case did actually get a little more attention than usual. But I deal with cases like this all the time, and people see it primarily as like a way to sort of point out that guy over there is a hypocrite. It's like okay, let's actually try to help the people first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree with you about hypocrisy. It's something. I mean, accusing people of hypocrisy is something I did a lot more when I was younger. It, mm -hmm. It's kind of it's kind of a young man's game or something. Ideally, I guess. <laughs> But but at the same time, when when we're talking about people who kind of fashion themselves as having, uh, in some sense, transcended uh, tribal uh, bias, or mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm th I'm thinking kind of about the IDW. I'm thinking, you know, you know, Barry Weiss uh -huh. is someone who kind of put the IDW on the map mm -hmm. and and kind of has helped position them as these people who, you know, unlike others, are, uh, you know, fearless advocates of free speech in all mm -hmm. of its forms. And yet, there are actually uh, threats to free speech yeah. that she does not call attention to, and I can I can name some. And, mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I wrote a piece, I have a newsletter called the Non-Zero uh, Newsletter, and... You know, Glenn Greenwald had already, I think, argued that uh, a, the IDW had tended to have kind of a blind spot uh, on issues of like, uh, you know, uh, well, Israel-Palestine type mm. issues, okay? Yeah. And, and what had just happened when I wrote this piece was um, President Trump had done some executive order, I'm sure you're familiar with it, about oh, anti-Semitism. We've been fighting that, by the well, way. Well, good. Uh, yeah. but, but, you know, I, I mean, it, it's completely egregious. It, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, because what they did was, it's a little vaguely worded, I guess, but, but certainly, as I understand it, I, what they do is 
they say, well, you tell me. They, they use title yeah. what? Is it title? Title uh, six. Title six. Yeah. Uh, to to classify, they they classify what anti-Semitism as religious discrimination yeah. or something. Okay, and then that, and then going beyond that, they invoke a specific definition of anti-Semitism, yeah. which is pretty broad, although which respected is, which in includes, some circles. Which includes protected speech. It, it, it's interesting because we know uh, Ken Stern was the uh, father of that definition of anti-Semitism, and he objects to it being used as a legal definition. He's like, no, this wasn't supposed to be a legal definition. This isn't more of an academic a, a, a definition. And those, the, those, those two things should not meet. And we've been finding this for a while, but I will say that, and, I, and the thing is, I'm not here, I don't know IDW enough to defend, you know, all of them. But I do know a lot of people who, who um, uh, came out against the anti-Semitism executive order who, you know, people are saying, where is blah, you know, on this? And they were like, well, actually, I, I, I complained about this a week ago. Because, and that's one of the things that I do think the hypocrisy focus, um, not only is it like sometimes missing the point, because yeah, the, does the IDW care more about wokeism? Sure. W w would they own that? Probably. Yeah. But at, um, and at the same time, of course, you know, like they, a lot of them are, are very strongly anti-Trump, um, uh, when they, when they talk about, it. but they do, you know, they, they do, they do have a, they do have a focus. Yeah. And the, the fighting the, um, the anti-Semitism executive order, uh, you know, that, that's definitely been a, a, a thankless battle, but, but Glenn, for example, well, right. like came out, you know. Yeah. Well, you know. Glenn has been good on these things, but yeah. the, the fact is the IDW people by and large haven't. And when this, mm -hmm. and, and just to flesh it out a little, I like looked at it and it seems to me that, uh, as I understand it, you could, uh, you know, Trump could have made the case that under this executive order, if there's a panel discussion at a university mm -hmm. and some student compares, uh, the the tactics of Israeli soldiers in the occupied territory to Gestapo tactics or something. Yeah. I don't think it would be that much of a reach under this executive order to say, well, there goes your federal funding. It's and, like... And and we've seen cases like that, and not 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 the extent of federal funding. Uh, the, the you know the, that that gets waved around and, and very rarely used. But we had a case like that at UC Santa Barbara many years ago, and it was and it was a Jewish professor, you know, likening the um, Warsaw ghetto to the treat, treatment of the Palestinians in the West Bank. And yeah, that that ended up being a you know a, a knockdown drag out fight. And, and sometimes people who were normally on, on our side on that case were completely against us because we were defending something that they saw as anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, you know, this professor himself pointed out, well, these are arguments that are actually made in Israel by, uh, in, in major newspapers by other Jews. Again, uh, like the, this is not considered to be beyond the pale there. So why should it be here? Yeah. And so anyway, at the time after this was issued, I went back and looked at the Twitter feeds of every person mentioned in Barry Weiss's uh, New York Times piece about the IDW, including Barry Weiss. Uh -huh. There was not a single complaint. There was not okay. a single complaint about this. Who, I, I got to remember, who, who was in it? Like, who was actually considered IDW? Uh, well, uh, Brett and Eric Weinstein, uh -huh. uh, for starters. Um Michael Shermer. At this point, I'm mainly recalling the the pictures. Um, Brett Weinstein's wife is it Heather? H Heather, yeah. Heather um, the uh, there were about all told there were about I think about eight people. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems like I mean, it, and and as you know, there's also the, all these uh, laws at the state level mm -hmm. as a result of a kind of a systematic effort to implement the to to establish these kind of laws at the state level. 
that make uh, people who advocate uh, boycott, divestment, and sanction of yeah. Israel ineligible for government contracts and things like that. And there are cases involving that. But so it's a it's a non-trivial thing, and and I I only think it it merits mention because the IDW has, especially under the the Barry Weiss kind of uh, you know rollout. Mm-hmm. styled itself as almost as transcending ideology in their yeah. defense of in their defense of free speech yeah. um uh, re- I, uh, there's a related question sure about um the moral sanction of on speech and yeah. and and um i also write wrote a piece about barry weiss herself mm-hmm. some uh, some months later in uh in in the non-zero newsletter and, and it kind of gets into this question of, um, so she defines anti-Semitism very broadly as including anti-Zionism. Mm-hmm. So in her world, as I understand it, if you were just like even a principled opponent of non-secular govern- government, say, suppose you were against Islamism, Zionism, you, you just thought there should be no countries where being a member of a, of a religion gives you any kind of privileged status as far as immigration or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that would, in her book, qualify you as anti-Semitic, and she would say so, and she is not shy about calling people um, anti-Semitic. And it, mm-hmm. it, it gets into the business of people being called anti-Semitic for being critical of Israel. Mm-hmm. Now, is I'm just curious as to now that's not a First Amendment issue, right? Because it's not the government constraining speech. Yeah. But is that a type of issue you get in? But because I mean, it does enter into the campus issues you deal with because yeah. students are are just shouting down people. Yeah, for well, speaking. If and when you know students get in trouble for uh, for, for for speech, you know, like we're we're, we're always there. Um, but when it comes to and and the law, the First Amendment law is actually surprisingly commonsensical. Like when it would, I, I when I talk abroad, you you're not supposed to be like a, a U.S. exceptionalist on anything. But I'm unapologetically like actually, you know, Denmark, actually Norway, you know, Germany. Like when we're there, when I'm speaking there, I actually think we do this better than they do. I think I think the First Amendment law is a very long meditation on how you have free speech in the real world. Um, but I also do uh, find myself arguing about uh, how we argue, you know, not, not just about what the limits of the law are, but like what kind of tactics, you know, like are, um, and I, I never go so far to say like acceptable um, because under certain circumstances, you know, you can make an argument for everything, but I do think your starting point, you know, like giving people the benefit of the doubt at first is, is not a, not a bad idea. L- listening to the, to the uh, person's argument rather than, you know, uh, at first at least and trying to figure out, you know, in, in this case, in some cases where they've been in the past or where you d- don't like them on other things. So I, I, I argue, well, I've been increasingly focusing on some of the cultural aspects of freedom of speech, um, you know, and, and I, I did this debate with 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 Ken White in, in Reason, where I talk about how a lot of these values used to be expressed in in, in idioms. You know, in, in American idioms, kind of like um, you know, uh, don't judge until you've walked a mile in someone else's shoes. Um, you know, it's a free things as simple as it's a free country. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. All these things that we said a lot more when we were kids demonstrated that there was some there was in, in addition to a legal understanding um, of free speech, there was kind of a folk understanding of it that I do think increasingly 
um, as things have gotten nastier and everybody's thinking about the worst actor on the other side, um, uh, have kind of fallen to the wayside. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, cancel culture, I would think in general, is not a First Amendment, amendment issue, right? Usually, uh, it, it, unless, it's, unless you're getting the government to fire somebody. Mm. If you're just pressuring the New York Times yeah. into firing their opinion editor... That's right. not strict uh, a free speech issue in this in the First Amendment sense. In the First Amendment sense, yeah, it's something that concerns you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was critical of the firing of James Bennett, you know, for example. And, I, and you know, uh, the only time I'm not clear that it isn't a First Amendment issue is when I feel like I've said that too often, and everybody knows that that's not the argument that I'm making. Um, but I do think that uh, it was kind of well represented in the um, attempt to get Brendan Eich fired back in Mozilla back in 20, 2014. Uh, Brendan Eich was the, uh, people remember Mozilla, it's the, the, one of the first web browsers mm-hmm. and um, was still around, it probably is still around. Uh, so back in 2014, it came out that he had given $1,000 to an anti-gay marriage um, initiative in California. Um, in 2008. And this is back when the uh, overwhelming majority of, of people uh, polled were against gay marriage. Nominally, Obama was, and nominally, Hillary Clinton was. And that's not defending it, but it's also pointing out that it was, unfortunately, at that point, a mainstream opinion. And then there was this big move to get him fired for when, when that came out. And it was nice to see about 60 different um, gay rights advocates, mostly, you know, right of center, uh, come out and say, no, 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 this is not what we wanted. We didn't want this to turn into, we won, and now you're all going to lose your jobs. We wanted, you know, to go back to uh, sort of a, a pluralistic approach where everybody's entitled to their opinion, you know, uh, that, that, that idiom, and live and let live. And I think that that was the right response, in my opinion. You know, like essentially being kind of like, um, and I feel like this is one of the things I, f- I find myself saying in the, in the cancel culture thing. People who have opinions that horrify you can still be good journalists. <laughs> mm-hmm. People who have opinions that are nutty um, can still be incredibly good at different things. There's nothing about having the quote unquote right opinions that makes you good at your job. Okay. Um I think maybe, by the way, Mozilla evolved into Firefox, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a um, so one more question about the relationship between well, the difference between legal sanctions against speech and moral sanctions or social mm-hmm. sanctions. So there's this, you know, uh, well, the whole Muhammad cartoon thing most yeah. recently, obviously, has uh, reared its head in the form of this um, uh, this decapitated teacher in France and, and the yeah. after effects of that. So I saw, um, I saw a tweet of yours mm-hmm. um, where you um, – well, let me, let me first tell you, my, my, I have a position I've been criticized for, which is that uh obviously um I, I I would apply both moral sanction and legal sanction mm-hmm. on anyone who decapitates anyone else. Sure. Uh goes without saying. At the same time, I would have been critical of that teacher for in the first place, um especially after somebody pointed out there are Muslim students in here, it's gonna, you know, at best uh, make them feel awkward. Is it really mm. essential that you show them the cartoon? Isn't it kind of like we can imagine a cartoon and that'll work for pedagogical purposes? So I would have been critical of what he did. Mm-hmm. And I remain that way even after he's been killed, even though obviously I disapprove of the murder. The murder should be punished and so on. 
Yeah. In your view, is that a and and people have uh, called that a kind of I guess I don't know if hypocrisy or or what. But but what is your view of that kind of is that a coherent position in your view? It's a coherent position. It's just not one I agree with. Um, right. The 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 uh, it, and it is a coherent position. I think I actually go so far to say, in my experience, it's a relatively popular one. Um, but I also think it's ancient. I think the idea that um, people's religious um, sensitivities need to be respected is, um, you know, it's a very old idea. Uh, it, it, and you know, to, to a degree, you know, that's that's the old idea of tolerance. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, but I, I feel like it, when you look at it sort of, it, you know, as someone who wrote about uh, evolution society, I feel like you know the the first tribal instinct is conformity, you know, and then it was a major innovation to have societies like you know Roman Rome during the Golden Ages, where it's kind of like you know you have your religion, everyone's got to sacrifice to the, uh, except for ancient religions, everybody has to sacrifice to this one cult, but otherwise live, you know, kind of a live and let live. But my, I advocate for what I think was was a step beyond that. Not just tolerating um, dissenters, but listening to them and keep, keeping in mind the possibility you might be wrong. This whole idea of liberal science that Jonathan Rauch talks about. Um, and well, by the way, I would advocate for that. I would advocate yeah. that those Muslim students try, you know, try to open their minds and recognize that this professor may not mean harm. I would advocate for that. Yeah. But given the reality that people's sensibilities are as acute as we know them to be, I would say that uh, I would use whatever social sanction I have to encourage people to respect uh, these kinds of sensitivities. And by the way, I'd ask you, is it different with ethnic sensitivities? I mean, Mm -hmm. what about the N-word? What about if somebody uses the N-word, do you still invite them to your cocktail party? Well, most of what I've seen, if someone calls someone that, no. But if someone actually, well, uh, but, 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 but where we've seen this are cases, and we've had now, now probably about a dozen, where people in classrooms will say it in the context of an actual case or a speech by MLK. They're not calling anybody that, but they're, they're, they're discussing it. And there, uh, the, there was a case where at the new school, um, also, again, a, a liberal professor, um, she pointed out something that is, I think, a pretty valid point. She said that the, uh, the name of the book, um, about James Baldwin or the Bill Booker film was I'm not your Negro, and that's not actually what James Baldwin had said. And the professor mm-hmm. remarked that that shows some temerity to recorrect to to, to 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 fix something that James Baldwin said. He knew exactly what he was saying, um, and she got in trouble. Like, and we had to actually uh, you know come and help her out. And one of the things that you know I I I, I do believe that particularly higher education should be trying to do is have that kind of uh, that certain level of detachment where you can actually look at these things from from a little bit farther away and see them without having the immediate reactive kind of like this person and and also to be one thing i always want to be very clear about i hold people responsible for the people they kill (laughs) and the fact that oh i I never believe that you 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 had it coming you know like situation particularly when it comes to this is something people i think this is one thing people have trouble wrapping their minds around the idea that you, I, I won't get into it. It has to do with the hum, very human tendency to conflate the issue of mm-hmm. causal analysis of what led to what with the with the allocation of blame, which sure, I think yeah. needn't be the same. But but anyway, the um, well, let me ask you a related question. So if sure. if there were a public school teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and, and I do want to. I do want to point a clarification. From what I read, it sounded like the. The professor really went out of their way to to even let people, you know, out of the assignments. You know, like it, it was teacher. the fact. 
the, 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 it wasn't yeah, a college the, class, right? Oh, sorry, the teacher, right? The, 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 the teacher really did try to do it in as uh, careful and thoughtful and voluntary way as possible. That was my understanding. Well, yeah, it reminds me of school prayer, you know. Uh, if a teacher says, by the way, you can be excused before we uh, say the school prayer, I mean, that's a lot of pressure on like a 10-year-old kid or something, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's... And there may have been court rulings to that effect. I don't know. But, um, yeah. I, and in fact, I think maybe that was. But but um, I guess I'd say, so uh, one, one last question on this. So if uh, a public school teacher in America with a lot of black, say 12-year-old black kids in the class, mm -hmm. is deciding whether to read some piece of literature that has the N-word mm -hmm. in it, and somebody says, you know, look, if you had grown up you know, like, mm -hmm. if you were in their shoes, you know, this might not sit well with you. Like, why don't you just skip this? Would you say, no, no, as a matter of principle, mm -hmm. proceed, use the N-word? Uh, I think that that had been done in schools forever, as, as, you know, from before Huckleberry Finn and uh, 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 came out. You know, uh, that, that, that essentially, that this is a norm that's changed relatively recently, that we don't draw a distinction between talking about something uh, and calling something. Uh, you know, there's a big difference between discussing uh, something in the context of literature, and I think that kids should be able to, should be familiarized with that idea. Because, like, going back to the idea of the uh, of the showing students uh, uh, the actual cartoons involved in, in a very serious, you know, uh, uh, tragedy, so people could evaluate on their own, I'm sure you've seen them, and it's actually really kind of affecting to see what the actual, what these people were murdered over. It's, they, they were, they, um, uh, they were much more humble in a lot of ways. And the idea that people were killed over, and the thing that's important is like people talk about it being the, the intolerance comes from being willing to publish that stuff. It's like, no, the intolerance is saying that you have to follow by my religious norms. That that's, that's not compatible uh, with, uh, with with free societies. Um, that, that essentially saying that I can, it, it's absolutely comp compatible with free society saying, I have a free exercise right and you cannot impose your religion on me. 100%, that's part of the First Amendment. But saying that actually, since I live in this community, you have to, that's, that's dysfunctional. So you, uh, here's a kind of related thing. When people walk down the street with signs that said, I am Charlie Hebdo, this yeah. is actually a different point I'm making. I thought, yeah, I'm with them in the sense that I defend the legal right of Charlie Hebdo to do what they did. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty obvious to me that if you walk down the street with a sign that says, I am Charlie Hebdo, we are Charlie Hebdo, no small number of Muslims are going to take that to mean that mm -hmm. you would have done what Charlie Hebdo did. That you, mm -hmm. you too would kind of like to make a point of sticking it in their face. And I'm not Charlie Hebdo in that sense. Hmm. Do, you, do you understand what I, I mean? I understand. I just don't think that's... I, I, I think that you're assuming too much about how people would actually react to that. I mean, You like, don't think uh, a significant number of Muslims took that to be... Uh, I think it's not just defending the right to, to, to commit the speech act, but identifying with the... Well, with the perceived sentiment behind yeah. the initial speech act, I, which I was perceived uh, by many Muslims as aggressive. I think a significant number of Muslims uh, were horrified at the murders. And, sure, of course, you, of course, know, and, and thought that this was that, that essentially it's like right on. Like, like I, I think that, and this partially comes from the idea of, of treating you know groups as monoliths. It ends up actually being when you, as you dig deeper into it, sometimes a lot more interesting and surprising than you expect. Okay, um, 
final kind of related thing. I, I mentioned this tweet of yours. It got my attention. And it was about this very thing. That's what actually led me into this, the, the French teacher. And you said, uh, well, it was, about, it was just about the thing. And you say, this is what I call censorship gravity. Our worst instincts pull us back to wanting to destroy the blasphemous and heretical. Mm-hmm. It's an instinct we must get up and fight every day, especially if we believe, as I do, in a pluralistic free society. I guess there I was just going to ask who we is because it seems to me that the kinds of people you're worried about taking the the kinds of people who take blasphemy seriously mm-hmm. whether Christians Muslims whatever are probably the kinds of people who aren't going to listen to you right I mean mm-hmm. I, I guess the question is how do you do the fighting in a way that's actually productive mm-hmm. um, I, I try to do it you know carefully slowly for people who are, are, are willing to listen and to be clear censorship of gravity isn't just about blasphemy it's about how free speech is a weird thing in human society it's weird fragile and rare uh, most of human society is like like i said a lot there's a lot of that uh tribalist conformist uh religions have been in some cases you know had some positive effects, but they've had some really horrifying effects when it comes to um, exclusion and justifying everything for, you know, some some of the true horrors in, in, in human history. But the point with Section of Gravity is that both that the power wants power back, um, uh, that religion wants conformity, that, that essentially things tend to pr- uh, um, pull us back to the idea that we're uh, that will increasingly rationalize um, exceptions to freedom of speech because that's 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 the normal state. So you, that by we, it's those, those of us who believe in small L liberal societies. We we have to fight for this uncomfortable idea of always being to a degree uncomfortable and not having perfect conformity. And actually, and I've actually you know I, I'm sure you know since you study Buddhism too, like it, it just moving from being unsettled by uh, diversity, confusion, all this kind of stuff, and uh, but ha- uh, rather having some kind of appreciation for it. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, uh, a couple of things I'd said I'd get into, I'd like to uh, at least touch on. Mm-hmm. Let's let's get back to the current political moment. Um, mm-hmm. But but as a segue, I hope it'll serve as a segue, mm-hmm. why don't you talk a little bit about how cognitive behavioral therapy helped you? Oh sure, yeah. Um, I, I was, uh, I would have really serious bouts of depression um, almost every year from probably like the mid '90s on, um, and uh, I, w- I, I got some. Was therapy it seasonal? And, was it literally once a year? Or? It, it, it tended to be, you know, it, it, in winter it all got. Mm-hmm. It was always there, but it would get worse in the winter um, for sure. Uh, and you know, I, I, I got a little better when I was in law school, believe it or not, but partially because I got some therapy. But the one that really fundamentally changed how I thought forever was cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, but what brought me to that point was, and I'm very candid about this in Coddling the American Mind, um, is that I tried to kill myself. Actually, that was probably this, you know, the second time I tried, I, I tried, I tried to kill myself. Um, I got very depressed. And to be clear, part of it was the culture war. You know, like the nastiness of the culture war, the, 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 the being, you know, disagreeing with my tribe on different points, but not being of the other tribe puts you in this kind of weird, isolated position. I was also the president of organization, and I kind of believe that you should have some amount of, of um, you know, uh, distance, you know, uh, so that you're not like playing favorites and going bowling with one employee and not the other. So I was extremely isolated, and I tried to kill myself. So, um, I uh, got myself hospitalized, you know, which, which, which was necessary. Was it an, an attempted overdose? 
Uh, it was. You don't um, have I, to say any more than you feel. I, like, I, 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 it, it was actually a somewhat complicated plan that was basically trying to foolproof everything, like basically overdose, but also you know asphyxiation. Mm. To be very vivid about it, I, I the funny thing is, Bob, is I've been reading all of these things about how to kill yourself, you know, like, and I was kind of shocked at how many of them warn you. It's like, well, this is what happens if this doesn't, you know, like th- these are the ways you might survive this, and it could be the worst, you know. Anyway, um, but I did cognitive behavioral therapy, and uh, it it really changed my life. So, like, a lot of those nasty voices that you have in your head telling you you're broken, and and um, you know, like the about about the bleakness and all this kind of stuff. I hear them now and it's hard for me to believe I ever really believed them. You know, like they don't sound persuasive to me anymore. Mm. And, and it's, it's been a fundamental, uh, fundamental shift for me. I was also studying Buddhism at the same time, by the way, which is one of the reasons why I was such a big fan of your book, why Buddhism is true. Well, thank you. And so, and you were seeing the connection between the two at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because like stoic philosophy, like there, there are times, uh, th- there's definitely lots of parallels between Stoic philosophy and Buddhist, but there are times where definitely I, f- I find greater peace in simply observing things, you know, not trying to, not activating my rational mind at all, um, kind of seeing it kind of the same way you, you, you see a thought kind of pop up in one corner of your brain. So the way you might during meditation. Yeah, exactly. Do you meditate regularly? I, I do. Um, I, I, I'm just like you, I, I'm not naturally good at it. Um, uh-huh. But uh, it's, it's, I've had some, you know, I've had some pretty profound experiences with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it means a lot to me. So uh, the, the, the way that was supposed to be a segue to the current moment is, again, um, social media, I don't know. I've personally <laughs> been kind of horrified to observe it over the last four, four years. And it's a little like what you say in the sense that I just kind of was having trouble identifying with my tribe. I mean, I thought my tribe, you know, once Trump got elected... Mm-hmm. I thought my tribe was going way overboard, being too reactive, playing into his hands by being so reactive and affirming mm-hmm. his narration, his narrative of persecution and so on. Um, but, I, but you know, social media makes it very hard to kind of speak out against your tribe. And, and uh, yeah. so that, uh, that part of your plight I can kind of relate to. Uh, I mean, does this... Uh, uh, do you recognize this this diagnosis of the the situation? Yeah, um, I, I do. I do think that maybe there there is a little bit of um, it's it, it, there's just so hot you can keep a fire burning. You know, it's one of the reasons why when people are faced with these situations like over the summer where there are lots of like fire this person now, my number one advice is slow the process down because mm-hmm. in two weeks. They're not. They're going to move on to something else. There's like the the, the uh, and there might be still people who want you to investigate that person, but there's a reason why you know people thought of due process a long time ago, and part of it was that get away from that heat, you know. Mm-hmm. And I do see you know little little corners on on the internet um, and on Twitter where you know you've, I follow people like you. I follow lots of people I consider to be very thoughtful and. Um, and I w- actually, you, you might like this. I'm, I'm working on a piece called Twitter as meditative practice about <laughs> kind of like treating it like your own mind and being like, Oh, look at that one. You know, I'm not going to follow that one, <laughs> you know, yeah. and let it, letting yeah. it kind of pop up and dissipate. And for this, for, for, for a, a, a reason that I think is greater than simply a mental habit 
it's because I really do think of Twitter uh, and, and social media as being an unparalleled look into the way our minds work individually and the way they work uh, when enmeshed in each other that nobody's ever had before. Literally nobody's ever had anything like this before. And when you sometimes replace the anger with curiosity, it can really help you be like, wow, we're nuts. Like, look at all these emergent properties that happen when you suddenly have hundreds of millions of people able to talk to each other. And boy, does this also, you know, and absolutely does it reveal nasty things about our natures? Absolutely. But interesting things about our natures. Now, bemused attachment is a a good thing to cultivate, I I think. Um, But even that can get you in trouble. If you yeah. just make an observation, like sometimes you get people complain that you're not outraged by the thing you're commenting <laughs> on, you know? Yeah. yeah, no, believe me, it, it's uh, I, I, I definitely try not to not not to respond to trolls and um, and know when to walk away. It, it's it's good practice for living in a in a pluralistic society. So, did, were you about to say that uh, when you said that you know these things tend to cool down? Or, were, mm-hmm. Are you just saying always? always wait before responding or, or are you suggesting that maybe we're entering a phase of cooling i hope we're entering it i don't think right now i think until uh until inauguration I'd, all bets are off as far as i'm concerned i, I have no idea what, what's going to happen but i do think that there's just so long you, you can maintain these kind of um nasty properties without people revolting against it or culturally adapting to it. Um, and, and that's where I, uh, when Haidt and I were working on the book and, and we were both so concerned about some of the um, darker capabilities uh, and, and nature of social media, he was kind of hopeful that there could be a top-down solution. And I was like, listen, you know, societies adjust, people adjust, um, they, they figure out what to do and what not to do. And right now I feel like we're in our infancy with this stuff. And I, and I do see some people, you know, letting, letting remarks go by them that they never would have accepted previously, Mm -hmm. but there's no other way to really make this work and stay sane. I I definitely have a policy that I owe nobody a response to anything. That's not something I want to put on my, uh, you know, on my Twitter bio, but it's like, yeah, no, I I absolutely believe that I owe nobody a response to absolutely anything ever in order to stay sane. Yeah. Because it's now so easy for people to reach you. You can't afford to have a a policy, even just on grounds of, time usage you know oh yeah i I, I did not bring enough gum for the whole class (laughs) right right um okay so i guess that's uh i i uh, i know you've got to go in about three minutes and in any event the sun seems to be the sun seems to have set wherever you are (laughs) because i can barely see you i look very star warsy i was gonna yeah it's great that you've got those little uh those little leds in your in your headphones it's um i'll always know where your head is it's right in between them yeah. Um, but but thanks for taking the time. Where is uh, do you know where the piece is going to be on uh, Twitter as as mindfulness exercise or whatever? Uh, my, I have a blog, Eternally Radical Idea. Um, it's really just a place where I can uh, and and the Eternally Radical Idea uh, is my conception of speech. I think it's always a difficult thing. I think it's always a crazy thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure when I'm going to write uh, when I'm going to write that. Um, but I have been doing the catching up with coddling series on Eternally Radical Idea. Okay. Good. So uh, I would direct people there. And your Twitter handle is what? Uh, at G. Lukianoff. Okay. 
which is at G-L-U-K-I-A-N-O-F-F. I I tried to get my family to change the spelling, because the way Russians who have that last name um, who come over now, my dad came over in the 50s, um, it's L-U-K-Y-A-N-O-V, which is so much Ah. closer to how you actually say it. (laughs) Ah. Uh, That would have, yeah, that would have made it more likely. My sister wouldn't agree to it. Oh, really? There was was an actual... Yeah, my sister, my sister Alex, um, Alexandra Lukyanova. You know, it's like about as Russian as you get. When did your parents um, come over? My dad came over in the fifties when he was in his mid twenties, um, and my mom came over. My mom, my, I, I'm the rare Irish Russian. Um, there's not a lot of us. My mom, it's kind of funny. The way I explain it is, my father is ethnically Russian, grew up in Yugoslavia, and thinks of himself as Russian. My mother is ethnically Irish, grew up in Britain, and thinks of herself as British. And all of these things make perfect sense if you know how you're... Because you, it, it, it's kind of funny, because like in Yugoslavia, you can't just wake up one morning and decide you're Serbian. Like, like, that, like that, that's not the way the identity works. Whereas, to a degree, at least in Britain, you know, if you're from there and you sound like them, you're kind of them. Yeah. And uh, a lot of Americans can't tell the difference between accents from that general part of the world anyway. <laughs> nope. Um, Okay, well, well, thank you so much. And, of course, um, the book is called The Coddling of the American Mind, a title you don't approve of, but I'm sure you're happy <laughs> with how well the book is done. I got people's attention. I, I, I can't, uh, I can't fault the results. Hey, look, I, I, I called the book Why Buddhism is True. I, I'm, I'm familiar with with, with uh, getting attention is one which, which I love the fact that you that, that you what, what, you answer that in an appendix. <laughs> you know, I, there's also I also have a little preface trying to you know clarify that I'm not quite as big an asshole as the title would make it seem like. <laughs> I thought just, it was a fantastic book. It's well, going to be one of my books of the month, maybe December. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations on all your success. I'll work and, on my uh, lighting next time. I, th- I think I, I have what I, it I worked thought for I had. a while. It worked for a while. Now it's the sun that's going out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a good look now. The uh, the ET look is good. <laughs> thanks. So th- thanks, Greg. We'll, thanks for having me, Bob. Talk to you down the road. Okay. Take care. Bye bye.